I'm Dr. Brent Schillinger, along with my colleague, Dr. Abby Strauss. Today's focus, substance use disorder in the adolescent age group. It's a growing concern. And here to help us better understand the landscape, Dr. John Dybin, who's Chief Clinical Officer at the Origins Behavioral Healthcare in West Palm Beach. He's got an interesting background. John has a BS in psychology, master's in conflict management, and a doctorate in health science. Doctorate in health science. I'm curious, what is that and how does that tie into SUD and addiction? So I had started off in vocational ministry, and in that, I got my original clinical training, actually, in seminary. It was in the early 90s that I was working as a pastor on staff, and I ran the youth program, and I created this local youth program, and there was a time, the early 90s, in Palm Beach County, a bunch of heroin had come up from Miami that had been cut really heavily with quinidine. We had a string of adolescent overdose deaths. I knew nothing about addiction except for having seen it in my own family experience and growing up. There was a parishioner and she happened to be an addictionologist. She came to me and she said, look, we've got to do something. These kids are dying. I understand the science and you've got the counseling background and also kids will talk to you. And so we began to actually reach out and create programs to reach out to kids and families specifically who were struggling with opioid addiction. Over the years, I eventually found that the therapy was really, and being a therapist and, and focusing on, on mental health and addiction was really where I wanted to be. So I, I left vocational ministry. I worked for Boys Town as an adolescent specialist and eventually came to work full-time in addictions a little over 20 years ago. One of the things that struck me again and again and again is that simply treating an individual was never as effective as when we really got into the family system. And even beyond family systems, really helping people understand how to navigate their whole system. So their families, but also all those other dynamics of their lives. And I became fascinated with systems. And that led me to the study of epidemiology. The health science program, it most closely like a doctor in public health, it has a heavy epidemiology epidemiology bend to it. And I have come to believe a few things. One, understanding what in our systems contribute to us being healthy or being sick as individuals, as communities. But I also found that specifically addiction is a discipline in healthcare that has not held itself and not been held to a lot of the same standards that we hold any other field of healthcare. The, the stigma associated with it has a lot to do with that. I came to believe, and I still believe more and more every day, that if we're going to truly change the course of addiction in our nation and our culture, that we really have to attack it with all the best scientific rigor that we attack other diseases and other conditions. And we have to understand addiction as a public health disorder. What's the current landscape in terms of substance use disorder in adolescence, you know, in terms of numbers, in terms of trends? 
What's interesting is that there is a general decreasing trend in a lot of the big, most significant areas. So the most recent 2022 monitoring, the, the two most commonly chemicals with adolescents is alcohol and marijuana. And one of the things that we see is a general continuous over years, a general downward trend in alcohol use amongst adolescents. However, it's still very high. Now, the 2022 numbers are around around 52% of 12th graders in the U.S. report having used alcohol in the past year. Marijuana is the next one. THC is right behind it. And it's at about 31% is the most recent numbers that we have of 12th graders. This is self-report using THC in the past year. We don't see the same downward trend with THC. It seems to be much more a plateau. But I would say from the research is just beginning to catch up with this, I can tell you from my clinical experience that though with THC, the, the numbers are in a plateau, 31%, though still being very, very high, the problems associated with specifically THC are growing and increasing pretty dramatically. My reaction to your initial concepts was that substance abuse has been treated as an individual problem, not as a group problem, not as a family problem. And not all families are dysfunctional. Sometimes it happens in families you have no idea why this happened. But often you have to look at the environment in which the person lives. And that's probably why NA and AA are so good because they don't treat it as an individual entity. And I think when you give someone Suboxone or whatever, it, it tends to make it too narrow at times. That, that requires a lot of time and a lot of effort to figure this out. But what you also just said is that there is a component during adolescence of exploratory and recreational use of drugs, which is not necessarily dysfunctional, or it doesn't evolve into dysfunction. So we have all these varieties, all these variables, all these parameters. How do you delineate some of these differences in your approach to the more global approach to dealing with a very potentially problematic group? You don't want to get these kids stuck on drugs. They don't learn social skills. They don't learn a lot of things. I'm sorry for the complex question, but your thoughts. And I think and there's two really important things I want to really talk about. And the first is that family dynamic. A lot of times there is, and I think it's important for us, especially as healthcare professionals, to really think about the messages that families get when their kids are using drugs or having problems, especially if they develop addiction. You're absolutely right. We know statistically that most adolescents who use drugs do not develop addiction. Most people who use alcohol and other drugs do not develop addiction. However, most people who develop addiction used in adolescence. In the developing brain, when we are introducing chemicals, always an increases risk of other mental health conditions and concerns. And, and sometimes kids are, are using to address mental health conditions and concerns that would be much better addressed from a psychiatrist. Important messages that I give to families when an individual has health concerns, when a child has health concerns, let's just say they're having problems, they have not yet developed addiction, but their use of substances is causing problems either in their relationships, their school performance, it affects the whole family. If an adolescent or any member of a family develops addiction, they have a chronic illness and all chronic illness impacts the family 
and is impacted by the family. The family can be the most wonderful. The family can be the most dysfunctional. I've worked with a lot of these families. When an 11, 12, 13-year-old is diagnosed with diabetes, it impacts the whole family, and the whole family impacts the disease as well and the treatment. The message, I think, for families is not about whether we are, as family members, to blame or responsible for someone else's use or addiction, but we look at the system and say, what in the system, what in the family contributes to getting healthy and what contributes to staying unhealthy? Think about that societally as well. We live in a, a time right now where everything is so politicized, and that includes addiction and addiction treatment and who's to blame. As healthcare professionals and as scientists, our responsibility is to step back and look at the system. We're looking at the whole system. What contributes to getting better, keep us unhealthy? One of the things that has always struck me is that we have not perhaps allowed kids to grow up and to learn social skills and how to deal with their own emotions. And part of this, people may disagree with me, but that's okay. Part of it is the earlier onset of puberty. And my wife looks at some of the girls and says, that is a young girl in a woman's body. She doesn't know what to do with this. And society is going to treat her as if she is an older person who knows how to handle her identity, her sexual curiosities, you know, the normal stuff. But it's coming so young and they're just not old enough yet to have experienced life more gradually training, having a good role model. I find that if we spend at least a few minutes when I'm dealing with families that have people with substance abuse issues, mostly with kids, to explore that a little bit. And quite often it's fascinating. That's one little flag that I think we don't look at sufficiently. Do you find that people are willing to do the family work or do you find that they just go into therapy, get Suboxone or an antidepressant or, or whatever and come home? Well, it's really interesting thinking about, you, you kind of hit on a pattern that we see. There is a building to a crisis then there tends to be a crisis. The crisis results in intervention. What happens is the individual who's identified as causing the problems in the family goes to treatment and the family and they exhale, we're all better. That idea of my loved one will go to treatment and then they will come back fixed is a common, common misconception that it is one that many, many, many years ago, we engage every single family of every patient, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of families every year. Trying to treat addiction without addressing the family system is like trying to fix a broken clock by giving it a nice coat of paint. Unless you deal with the whole system, it's very, very likely that someone will go back, the same system will be there and are more likely than not to help move the whole family back into that mode. It's This is not just addiction. This is chronic illness. Think about your patients and your families. There is a phenomenon of family homeostasis. That means that anything can become normal. 
So when addiction is part of the family system, dealing with that fire, that tornado, that chaos actually becomes part of the norm. They send that chaos, they send the person off the treatment, but then what happens is they don't know what to do how to be. I'm so glad my kid's gone to treatment, but for the past two years, I've been doing nothing but dealing with his or her addiction. And that's become my identity is save my kid and be the advocate. And now here I am and who am I? And then if my kid really gets well, I'm going to have a crisis. So it's important for families to know that the crisis is not over when their loved one goes to treatment, but actually this dynamic of family homeostasis becomes this kind of underground psychological collusion to get back to what feels normal. In my own practice, we bring in family, have them do a five-day program and educate them. And they often will walk in saying, I don't need to be here. I'm not the one with the problem. We start by helping them understand what addiction is and what it isn't. Because if I believe addiction is just a bit of willpower, if I believe it's just a, a bad habit, then I'm not likely to really see that I am affected by it. But if I see it as a chronic progressing neurobiological disease, then I can see that it affects me as a family member. And then once I understand it and understand how it affects my family, I can begin and, and we actually help families begin to understand all change feels weird. And there is a natural human tendency to move back to whatever we have known. And when family systems are in chronic stress and distress, that becomes their norm as they start to get healthy they go through a process where it really feels strange. This transition time that I can't say enough about having clinical support for the whole family so that healthy can become a new normal. People have spoken about generational cohorts. How does that change the whole scenario in terms of what we're seeing in terms of adolescence and substance use and addiction? The idea of generational cohorts is that people within a given time frame are influenced. They're thinking the way they view the world, regardless of their gender or their race, their social position, that people within a given time frame are influenced by major world events. And that influences how they see the world, how they think, continues throughout their life. People really started talking about this in 40s and 50s. And by the 70s, there was a whole discipline around this. And famously, people would, people would look at the older adults that were the World War II generation, and then they would compare them to the baby boomers. Things that happened in that World War II generation were things like World War II, but they also experienced things like the Great Depression. They also experienced things like prohibition. So they know what an alcoholic is. If I am that World War II generation, I'm very clear because alcoholism is a moral failing and an alcoholic is some guy who lives under the bridge and doesn't have a job and the alcoholic can't be your boss and it can't be your coworker. It certainly can't be your wife. But then you compare the attitudes of the baby boomer generation that grew up in the Vietnam era, that message, very, very different messages and messages about authority and messages about how you trust the government. So that first generation, you trust the government, but that next baby boomer generation, a very strong message. I was talking to somebody about this once and she said, you know, I grew up in that generation and I didn't get that message from my parents. We respected authority. She said, but my nickname 
They used to call me establishment. Even though she didn't have those beliefs, she understood that this was the, the culture and the context. If you keep going down, you can see what influences the generational cohorts, generation Xers and the generation Y and millennials are in adulthood. But now when you start to get into these Gen Zs, one of the big, huge things that influence you in those really key moments, what's influencing our kids right now. Having a social passion. When you have a social passion, there's something that needs to be done. And I think back to Vietnam War protests and the civil rights protests. There was a lot of marijuana use. There was a lot of drug use indeed. And I don't have statistics with me, but I lived it. And I knew most of the kids were using marijuana recreationally, but they had something. Oh my God, there's going to be a protest over at the library. That was important to them. So we need a social passion. One of the things is that perhaps life has become too comfortable, too easy, and we look for ways to have some sort of exploration and we don't have it with the social passion. So we look at drugs and I'm sure people could rightly say that is far too simplistic, but I do believe, and I want to go back to the word passion. It's like, when does someone stop drinking? When they hit bottom. And that means they have a passion to get better. What I will say that's sad is that many of the psychiatric training programs do very little in terms of family therapy. They really don't know what it's all about. They treat independently and don't look at the larger gestalt in the person's life. Do you find people liking this? Are they resistant? Again, going back to what you alluded to earlier, you're looking at something that's a bit harder, but potential for a real better endpoint is really is really greater and takes time. Is there money for it? Is there insurance for it? First, let me answer directly about the how people feel about it. It's a mixed bag, but there are a lot of people who are very resistant. I mean, imagine your kids in treatment. I'm asking you and your wife to take a week off of work to do something that you probably would never imagine doing to be and a lot of people will, will talk about I, I i don't like talking about myself in front of people and my problems in front of people and what we find is that overwhelming when family members go through this their responses are always tremendous gratitude thank God, I did this. And it's true with family therapy as well. I don't need the help. There's a tremendous amount of gratitude because when you have, when someone you love and someone in your family in particular has health problems of any kind, but especially when they have true severe chronic illness, so if they have addiction in particular, it impacts people in a way that they cannot even see. When we can get them to engage a process where they can increase their understanding of what's happening, where they can also do their own work and realize I've been affected and I, I deserve help too. I deserve wholeness and, and I deserve wellness. Overwhelmingly, people respond very, very positively once they do it. But there is definitely a resistance. With parents in particular and adolescents, there is a tremendous fear of being blamed. Parents who have kids who are struggling with drug use or especially if they have addiction and other mental health conditions as well, 
they're reeling. They don't know. There is part of them that blames themselves. Almost, I see it all the time. There is a fear of coming into a group or seeking and kind of opening this up even to a therapist or a psychiatrist or anybody because they're afraid that they will be blamed. We cannot assume that all parents are normal. We cannot assume that they're not full of their own neuroses and their own borderline traits and narcissism because they're not. Many of them are not. And so the kid is simply reacting to parents who have real heavy mental health issues. That becomes terribly frustrating. The kid's got no place to go. And when that reality comes, I want to still get that family. If I've got a diagnosed access to, I know we're beyond that with APA, but you know, that uh, personality disorder, that narcissist, I still want that parent and that kid in family therapy because at least I can help provide a container for that kid. When I worked for Boys Town for some time, I was the director of emergency adolescent services for Central Florida. And so I ran an adolescent shelter and a staff secure detention. These were kids who literally had nothing. They came from extreme abuse. And so with those cases, when that happens, family dynamic work, though it may not involve their biological parents, helping provide a container where kids can feel like they are grounded and they they can develop some skills. You talked about social skills. They're so important. They can have some skills for reconnecting to themselves and to other human beings. What happens when you have a kid who is in that environment or doesn't have that healthy family structure, they tend to feel lost and they develop that inability. You were talking about attachment and helping kids learn how to attach in healthy ways is especially important when they are in, even more important, when they exist in unhealthy environments. So when it comes to substance use disorder, addiction in the adolescent age group, where do we stand in terms of preventive strategies? When you look at just the decrease in self-report, what you'll hear people say is that this is evidence that prevention programs work. Other times you'll hear people say prevention doesn't work at all. In my experience, and I believe that the research really bears this out, the right prevention programs work well. The wrong ones do not. There were some prevention programs, especially in the 80s and 90s and even the early 2000s, where famously research indicated they, they would look at outcomes, not only were not helping anything, but it was making things worse. I think in the early 2000s, really where we started prevention, there are myriad prevention programs that work incredibly well and demonstrate that they decrease the likelihood of substance use in adolescents. There is a narrative out there. I here sometimes prevention doesn't work. And it is not true. Research does not bear that out. Early prevention, and the earlier we can do it, the better. The problem is that fear-based prevention was very, very popular. And that just for the most part has not bared out as being very successful with adolescents as a rule. But education and prevention, and specifically prevention that provides, again, support, education uh, to the whole family, especially when it is early prevention, we know that it has positive effects, which is decreasing the likelihood of use. And we can look at these, you know, we've got this monitoring the future survey. 
every year we can look at this and we can see trends in substance use, not problems in substance use, that the problems continue to grow, but trends in use going down. Families will say, especially families who are worried about this, but who haven't come up in, in their homes yet. What can I do as a parent to, to set my kid up for success, do to decrease the likelihood? And my answer is the number one thing that you can do is eat with your family as often as possible. You make a family unit. You, you feel some warmth. It's a place to talk, maybe even disagree and debate and learn how to do it in a good way. I, I don't want to ever put a, a guilt message on to, to folks, but I want to say is that it is so valuable. And so every night we have dinner together, you have to share something with the family each night. One thing I love that is, has really come into the dialogue about addiction, and it is so beautiful and powerful and true, is that addiction is about disconnect and recovery and is about connecting. And there's so many ways to understand it, and it's important to understand the neurological aspects and what's happening in the brain, but connection, and this is another reason why groups like AA, they are so powerful. What do they call themselves? They don't call themselves treatment. They don't call themselves self-help. They call themselves a fellowship. Human connection is critical to being healthy. And when we don't have that, we are more likely to try to find something to anesthetize the emptiness that a disconnected life brings. So with children and adolescents, it's our job to teach them how to connect. You have to just connect with them and provide those opportunities. Would you say there is a role for some type of universal screening and something that, that parents should be aware of, that pediatricians should be aware of, that the schools should be aware of in terms of some type of screening process? At every point where there is health screening, screening for substance use should be included in that and be seen as an important part of the health screening. The two groups where we tend in healthcare and in, in medical healthcare, in psychological healthcare, we tend to kind of gloss over it is as younger adolescents, so those preteens and early teens and older adults, people who are coming to the geriatrician. And those two groups are less likely to receive, to, to have serious attention paid into screening for substance use disorders. I personally think that as much as I'm going to get my blood pressure taken and being asked on a regular basis about substances is a critical part of addressing this issue early on. To me, what you're talking about is the essence of treatment. We need the medication. Yes, there's a time and place for it. What you're doing is hard, very, very hard. And just to be clear, American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that if you have an adolescent with a severe opioid use disorder, that you consider medication specifically, one of those big three, the, you know, Suboxone, Methadone, or Evitrol. And again, this is one of those things that's become so politicized. Most of my influence, my stronger influences have been towards the, the therapeutic abstinence-based treatment. And you've got people on this side that will just kind of demonize medications at all, especially medications 
populations that do maintain chemical dependence. And so there are people on this abstinence side that are just militant against it. Then you have people on the other side who are militant about if you're not putting everybody on these drugs, you're just killing people. It's amazing how politicized it's gotten. I just want to say to stop. We are healthcare professionals and scientists and our job is to be objective. And you hit on something too. This kind of treatment, it takes longer. It is expensive. People may or may not have insurance. Insurance may or may not pay for it. There's a lot of complications. If I've got a, a 20-year-old who is shooting up heroin every day and I don't have the resources for anything else and there's a six-month waiting list at the state-funded treatment center, you better believe I'm going to do all I can to help her get on whatever it is, whether it's Suboxone or Methadone or and in the same way that physicians, when they see someone develop type 2 diabetes, don't want to automatically say you're going to be insulin dependent now for the rest of your life. They want to actually say, maybe we can treat this with diet, with exercise. In healthcare, there is a risk-benefit analysis. And I do believe that it is possible for people to recover from severe addiction and not be on any drugs that will cause them to go through withdrawal if they stop that. I've seen it. I see it all the time. And there are some times when that's not the case and where those drugs can be incredibly important. I, I believe there is a cultural component to this that we have to address. And most specifically with the medications for Alzheimer's. We have medications, they really don't work well. The real solid treatments our diet and exercise and keeping a person intellectually active, but it was too easy to take care of Alzheimer's by giving somebody Namenda. Right on it. My physician has told me I, I need to drop a few pounds. I hear you got all sorts of great weight loss drugs out there. I'd love to just use that. And the reality is I'm going to have to change my diet, do a little more exercise. And that's a lot harder. And I think that there is, you're right, that is a cultural what is the cultural message that we get about the value of expediency versus the value of sustainability? Abby and I have this conversation all the time and with various experts about this balance between abstinence, medication, the term MAT, medication-assisted treatment. The trouble is, way too often they're given medication, but there's none of this assisted treatment, the whole behavioral component, and that's a challenge. But then again, no matter what the approach, more often than not, there's this high recidivism rate. How do we deal with that? A radio host, he was asking about this. I said, I've gotten to see lives restored and I've seen people die and relapse. So I've seen the restoration and I've seen the recidivism. There is one big difference between those who are restored and those who, who go fall into that recidivism or fall into tragedy. All of the people who I have ever seen be successful, uh, they were not dead. There is an argument for that place for keeping people alive and engaged so that they can have an opportunity for healing. I do think it's important to at least throw out Narcan. And I personally carry it wherever I go, but I'm always encouraging families if you have adolescents with substance use disorders, especially if you've got that, you should carry naloxone on you 100% of the time if you have any family member with an opioid use disorder. But if there are opioids in your home, 
I recommend naloxone on hand. When it comes to actually doing the work that leads to success, I am becoming a whole person. I'm able to have a quality of life, a quality of relationships with people who matter to me. It is about treating the whole person. A significant reason for recidivism is that we treat a chronic illness that is impacted by the family and we treat it as an acute problem that only has to do with an individual. The way we will decrease recidivism, number one, decrease stigma around substance use disorders so that people are freer to engage, not just the individual with substance use disorder, but their families and loved ones, easier to engage medical and clinical care for this. And then treating the person as a whole person the physical body, the psychological, the emotional, and the spiritual. We connect to things like awe, like love, like joy. We are more than the sum of our parts. Our goal is to treat the whole person, including family, in the whole aspect of recovery. With the overwhelming abundance of fentanyl, in the context of adolescents who like to experiment, who like to rebel, do we need to ramp up our efforts in a certain direction because of the presence of fentanyl? Absolutely. And, and that's, you know, one of the things when you look at the trends, there's actually a decreased trend in adolescents using prescription opioids. But at the same time, over the past few years, we've seen an increased trend in adolescents presenting to the hospital for opioid poisoning. Fentanyl is a big part of that. So this is where educating, again, sometimes people just throw up their hands and say, you can't talk to adolescents and you can't educate them. The truth couldn't be further from that. The key is honest and straightforward education to these adolescents. And going back to the earlier idea of adolescents are now in adolescence much younger. There's an earlier onset. I think that's not only physical and biological that we're saying, those of us that are adults now, I think it's very hard for us. We talk about social media and the impact of it to really, really grasp how powerful social media and the influence of social media is to kids and how much they believe that is reality. They're introduced to so many ideas is overwhelming and things that a 10-year-old will talk to you about today, even two generations ago, we wouldn't have considered. Recognizing that kids today are used to more complex levels of information than kids were generations ago. Education that is honest, that's direct about the dangers of fentanyl. And the other thing is, when we think about prevention, where prevention, we really started to see it become successful was around the, the 2000s when you had all these lawsuits against big tobacco, had to put all these funds for advertising, for prevention in youth smoking. The youth smoking campaigns of the early 2000s, incredibly, incredibly successful. Their secret was it wasn't a bunch of adults talking down to kids and trying to scare them. 
who do kids listen to and what do kids value? Kids listen to kids and they value being rebellious and cool. Think about the advertisements, the anti-smoking campaigns of the, the early 2000s. They made smoking kids who were saying, we're cool because we're staying away from this. And they did it in the kids' language. The ultimate keys are this. When it comes to fentanyl, also when it comes to the THC levels in the joints that people were smoking back in the 60s that we were talking about, THC levels were 2 to 5%. Today, kids are vaping THC that is 80 to 90%. The research is just beginning right now. We're not conclusive. There is some suggestion that, for example, the cannabidiol that's in there actually has some protective effects. Now, when kids vaping THC today, it's entirely different drug than their grandparents who were smoking weed in the 60s. What's important for us to do is give them the information as much as possible directly, honestly, and speaking at their level to what matters to them. Dr. John Dybin is Chief Clinical Officer at Origins Behavioral Healthcare in West Palm Beach. John, thank you for being a part of this very important discussion. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.